Well, last week, as some of you know, I began this uh, two-part series on Dark Nights of the Soul. And before continuing on this morning and wrapping up this short two-part series, I just want to give us a brief review to get us back up to speed as to where, where we were last week. And you may recall that I started by saying that most, if not all, people of faith at one time or another sometimes get into a place where God feels absent or distant or nowhere to be found or very disinterested in our lives or disconnected from making any difference in a situation we might be in the midst of. Many of us in our journey of faith have endured double pain, the pain of the circumstance and the pain of feeling God's absence in the midst of that circumstance. And as you may recall, I suggest it has been uh, mentioned over the course of many, many, many hundreds of years that such experiences are often called the dark nights of the soul. You may remember, too, that I suggested that experience a dark night of the soul is not only normal, but in fact part of what it often means to be a person of faith. And over the course of history, person after person after person after person has described what dark nights of the soul feel like, including some of the giants of our Christian walk. Remember what C.S. Lewis said about his dark night of the soul? He wrote, Go to God when, you need, when your need is desperate, when all other help is in vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside, and after that, silence. And scripture, too, is filled with stories of people of faith who poignantly experience God as either being absent or uncaring. And even God in the flesh, Jesus, experienced a dark night when Jesus on the cross yelled, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Last week, you may remember, too, I reviewed some possible reasons why dark nights happen to begin with. Uh, my favorite reason that I shared with you as to why dark night happens is I have no clue. I don't know. There's so much we don't know about God that we will never know all there is to know about God. And this is why Paul, in his letter to the people of Rome, wrote this. Is there anyone around who can explain God? Anyone smart enough to tell God what to do? It's way over our heads. But I also shared that narc nights of the soul could happen for many, many other reasons, some of which I got, on, got into. Sometimes dark nights happen as part of a growing and maturing faith. Sometimes dark nights happen because we have not addressed sin in our lives, which is breaking our relationship with ourselves, with others, and with God. I also talked about how our mental states, things like depression, can affect how we experience God's presence. And I invite you all, if you'd like, uh, that sermon is online from last week, and you can get into all the details of what I talked about. But this week, I'd like to explore something else about, about dark nights, and that is what on earth we can do when we're in the midst of them. What can we keep in mind when we're experiencing such tough places? Well, first, a caveat. Responding to dark nights is not something that is formulaic. I'm not getting into something that says, just do this, and you're going to make it through a tough time quickly. Just take these steps and your dark night will end suddenly. All of what I'm saying is not like taking an aspirin for a headache. Our journey with Jesus is not so simple. That said, it is my hope that some of what I have to offer might be helpful to us when we are in dark night spaces. And so with that said, let's, let's explore some things to keep in mind, perhaps, when we are in such a place. 
One thing to ponder if and when we're in a dark night of the soul is to ponder the whole idea of reframing and seeing what we are going through in a different kind of way. A number of years ago, I was in a really bad place. A lot was going on. There were major challenges in major areas of just about every area of life. So I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I read scripture and bad stuff continued. I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I read scripture and bad stuff continued. And whatever I did, bad things continued to happen. And God began to feel so far away and even irrelevant to me in the midst of it all. So I concluded, Robert, there's something wrong with my faith. There's something wrong with me. It's not normal for me to be having this challenge of faith. I began to feel sorry for myself. I got down on myself. And pretty soon, all of my energy became focused on one place, me. And then one day it hit me, and I began to think about these questions. I began to, to think and ask questions and make statements to myself. You know, my focus has been on me. My question has been, where's God with me in this place? Maybe I'm asking the wrong questions. Maybe I need to change my focus. Instead of asking questions like where God is, maybe I need to ask what it is that God needs me to do, what God wants me to learn what God might be trying to do in this time through my felt absence of him. How might God be using people and circumstances around me to help me that I've not been paying attention to? What are some things I've not been willing to entertain? Maybe I need to ask God for some ways in helping me change some of the ways I've been responding to the messes that I've been in. Maybe God is wanting me to do some things differently that I've not been willing to do. Maybe this whole thing is not really about me to begin with. Now, reframing in part is all about dramatically shifting the questions we are willing to ask ourselves and to ask God. I discovered and have discovered that when we have a fixed and static way of responding to life, or a fixed and static way of responding to stresses, or a fixed and static way of responding to things that don't go well, it can inhibit us dramatically from being in touch with what God might be wanting to do in and through us and where God is leading us. Now, I need to be clear about something. I'm not saying that dark nights are all a matter of reframing things or asking different questions, or that things will suddenly change if we just ask different questions. I'm simply offering something to consider as just one strategy I'm going to get into when we're in such dark night places. Well, another thing to consider. It's important we remember that God is not made of Tiffany stained glass. Now, I served in a church once for a number of years as rector of an Episcopal church, and it was gorgeous, 200 years old with this phenomenal Tiffany stained glass. I would go in for hours and just look at it. And despite my enjoyment of that glass, it hit me one day that God is not made of glass, that the danger of stained glass is to begin to look at God through stained glass eyes. You see, throughout Scripture and history, one characteristic of those with great and mighty faith is a willingness to wrestle mightily, honestly, and vulnerably with God. Visualize a sweaty, noising wrestling match in a ring. And this image portrays the faith journey of many people with deep and mature faith. They wrestle with God because they know that God will not break as a result of their wrestling. And when we're willing to wrestle, it's a great reminder that we're not wrestling with air, we're wrestling with God. The wrestling itself is a sign of a relationship in the presence of God. You may remember the story of Jacob in the Bible. 
One day, Jacob is out and about with his entire family and flocks. He'd been through so much. And as he and his clan are traveling, Jacob learns his brother Esau is approaching him. And Jacob is totally undone. He's afraid because he thinks that his brother wants to get him. So in the middle of the night, Jacob sends his family away, and Jacob is left alone. And it's then that a man comes and wrestles with Jacob for the entire night. Many of you know the story. We learn, of course, that it is God himself who wrestles with Jacob. But the critical thing about the story, in my view, is that it is God who comes to wrestle with Jacob, not Jacob who travels to wrestle with God. In other words, God initiated the wrestling with Jacob, not the other way around. And so I've often wondered that when we are struggling in wrestling with God and asking questions, is it really our idea? Are we the initiator or is God? Is our wrestling with God a sign of God's absence or in fact a sign of God coming directly to us and of God's intimate presence. Well, aside from reframing things and being willing to wrestle mightily with God, when we're in dark places, I think it's important that we be very careful about seeking dramatic signs for direction. One of my favorite stories in Scripture is the story of Gideon. Gideon was called by God to lead a great, vast army. But God said, before I lead this army, God, I need a sign. I need a sign from you, God. And so Gideon said, God, I'm going to put some fleece on the ground. And in the morning, if the ground is dry, but the fleece is wet, I will trust you. And that's what happened. But it was not enough for Gideon. So Gideon then reversed things. He said, okay, God, I'm going to put fleece on the ground. But this time in the morning, if the fleece is dry, but the ground is wet, then I'll believe you. And that's what happened. Have you ever had Gideon moments in your faith journey? I have, and there have been passages in which I've wanted a clear sign from God, something like the dramatic burning bush that was not consumed by flame that Moses saw. But I've learned over the years that while it's okay and sometimes human to ask for a sign and sometimes signs happen, if we depend on signs to prove the presence of God, we may be mightily disappointed. Ultimately, faith is about trusting what we cannot see as it says in the letter to the Hebrews. Now, one point about signs. Sometimes signs happen, but they sometimes can be totally unexpected, and sometimes we need other people to point out the signs that are right around us. Years ago, I was discerning where to accept the next call to serve in a church. I was in a total quandary I began to ask God for a sign. Which church are you calling me to serve next? In fact, I got into so much turmoil, my Episcopal bishop at the time said, I think it's time for you to go visit a psychologist who works with clergy. <laughs> so I did. And one day, in a session with her, I was sharing my confusion and struggle. I said, you know, I really need a sign as to which church to go and serve. I've been asking God, just show me a sign. And on her part, there was a very, very long pause. And she looked at me, and with a deeply compassionate voice, she said, Robert, you are being a complete idiot. (laughs) (laughs) 
You want a sign as to whether or not you should accept the call that you are considering at the moment? For God's sakes, will you just look at your wife's face? <laughs> Whenever she talks about the possibility of serving at that church, her faith glows like Moses. What more of a sign do you want, you moron? <laughs> it's a funny story, but it's so true that sometimes God's sign is right in front of us. And we need somebody else to point it out that it's right there. Aside from reframing things and wrestling with God and caution when seeking signs, one person suggests, and I really love this image, that when we're in a dark night of the soul, it's helpful to remember something about flying planes. Now, I'm not a pilot, but I remember watching years ago the Weather Channel when they talked about VFR and IFR flying conditions. Uh, VFR means visual flight rules are in place. If you pilots are here, you can tell me I'm right or wrong. I mean, you can see things clearly. And IFR means that instruments are required to fly, so you have to be licensed to be able to fly by such instruments, not by what you can simply see out the window. One writer, I think, correctly suggests that it is, while it's dangerous for pilots to trust perceptions or feelings in IFR or instrument conditions, as it might feel like you're actually going straight, but you actually might be headed directly going to the ground, a pilot must learn to trust instruments more than feelings when flying when things are murky. So the same writer notes that when we're in a dark place spiritually and things are murky and we don't feel God's presence, it's time to turn to the instruments of our faith instead of our emotions. Not to trust our feelings, but the instruments of our faith. So what are some of the instruments of our faith? Instruments of our faith include things like scripture, creeds, what people like C.S. Lewis have written, spiritual disciplines, worship, being active in a community of faith, even when you don't feel like it, turning to what have been the foundational, foundational elements of our faith and turning to them and immersing ourselves in them even when we don't feel like it. It can get us back on track and can keep us from falling too much prey to our emotions that may be leading us to question the presence of God. And related to this, as I mentioned last week, truth is truth and does not depend on our emotions or how much we understand something. You may recall I said two plus two is four, regardless of how perplexing we find mathematics to be. God is God even when we don't understand God. God is God even if we don't feel God. God's presence is not determined by anything you or I do. On this point, C.S. Lewis wrote, faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. Aside from reframing and wrestling and exercising caution and seeking signs and understanding the instruments of faith, and remembering that truth is truth despite feelings, it is so important we remember that circumstance does not determine whether or not God is with us. And boy, can this be hard. The kind of thinking that says, if things are good, God is present. If things are bad, God is far away. If you pray really well, you will be prosperous and things will be abundant. Those are very dangerous lines of thinking and in fact, unfaithful. In chapter 11 of the letter to the Hebrews, from which we heard today, there's this beautiful description of faith, the effects of faith, and what happens through faith. 
Simply stated, faith is trust. Trust in God, trust that God is with us, trust that God loves and forgives us, and trusting despite what we might be seeing or feeling. Faith, as it says in Hebrews, is a conviction of things that we cannot see. And one version of the Bible reads to have faith is to be sure of the things we hope for, to be certain of the things we cannot see. Jesus knew this as he was surrounded by people who did not necessarily trust him. You may remember the story of Thomas, who was filled with doubt all the time. And one day Jesus said to Thomas, do you have faith in me because you've seen me? Blessed are people who believe and trust in me despite the fact they have never seen me. Jesus knew then and knows full well now that trust is not based on circumstance or what is happening. Note also very important today in our reading that the writer not only talks about people who did amazing things because of trusting God, like Abraham, Sarah, Rahab, and others, but he mentions people who had a terrible time yet kept the faith, kept the trust. In our reading we find others, others who had faith, suffered mocking and flogging and chains and imprisonment. Some were stoned to death, killed by the sword, sawed in half, were destitute, persecuted, and tormented. I love reading that verse when I'm in a bad place. As one person writes, the author of Hebrews knew that life for everybody is of faith is a mixture of triumph and tragedy, success and failure. And the writer of Hebrews states this so that we do not conclude that outward circumstances are correlated with our faith. What is happening is not the measure of God's presence engagement or presence or love. And just a few more quick thoughts as I begin to wrap up. For those of you who have been in some of our adult ed offerings, you know that what I will often get into is that it's incredibly helpful to act, to take some action when there is a big mess and struggle going on in the inside of us. And the same is true when we're in the midst of a dark night of the soul. Instead of keeping the struggle inside, God invites us to get it outside. Now this is obvious, but ways of taking the struggle outside talking, journeying, drawing, getting into art, playing music, writing music, banging on drums, screaming, hiking, doing anything active to express the struggle that's going inside can be very helpful. Again, I know it may sound obvious, but to get out the inside gives some light and makes it much more difficult for us to isolate and hunker down and hide away by ourselves in darkness, which can often happen. Remember, too, last week that I suggested that sin is something we need to deal with, that when we're doing something that damages ourselves or others, our relationship with God, it can make it harder to see God acting in our lives. So we need to deal with the sin that's ongoing in our lives because it can impede our ability to see God acting. This is why C.S. Lowe's wrote, the instrument through which you see God is our whole self. And if a person's self is not kept clean and bright, the person's glimpse of God of God will be blurred. One final thing. Remember the words of Psalm 42. As a deer longs for a stream of cool water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for you, the living God. Day and night I cry, and tears are my only food. And all my enemies ask me, where is your God? Yet I will put my hope in God, and I will praise God, my Savior. 
Now, the beautiful thing about this psalm is that it captures what a dark night of the soul feels like. It's an expression of what we as human beings go through. And yet, while there is not denial of pain, nor should there be, the psalm also gets at something else, and that is the importance of praising God. And while it can be difficult and counterintuitive to do so when we're in a dark night, I believe we need to praise God, not for the pain, but for God who is in the midst of it all. Praise for being our creator. Praise for being the person, the creator who loves us and has created all that is good and right. And when we're willing to praise God, even though we don't feel like it, even in the midst of those dark nights, something happens. Our perspectives can shift. So reframing, wrestling, exercising caution when seeking a sign, using instruments of our faith, remembering that truth is truth despite emotions, recalling that circumstances, not the indicator of God's presence or absence, taking our inside struggle and outward through action, knowing that faith is all about trusting what we cannot see, dealing with sin, dealing with mental health issues as I got into last week, praising God in the midst of it all. There is so much that we can do and act upon when God feels absent. Dark nights are tough and painful and mysterious and upending and discombobulating, but we're not helpless. There's a lot we can do to engage with God that are steps we can take that are given to us by God. Now, I know I've covered a lot of ground today, maybe perhaps more of a lecture than a sermon, but I hope there's something that each of us can take away to think about as we explore our own dark nights of the soul. And remember most of all, as I said last week, we all desperately need each other. We all desperately need this chapel. We desperately need Christ. We are bathed in the grace of God no matter what we do. And this chapel is a place for everyone, for all of us, and for those who are not yet here, wherever we are, wherever we are in our journey in faith and whatever it is that might be happening. And know that wherever you are in a dark night, all of us are here to walk this journey with you because it will happen, yet grace and the love of the chapel abounds. So for those of you in a dark night, don't go at it alone. Bring it to us, and we'll walk alongside of you. Amen.